I've listened to Nevermind by Nirvana dozens of times. And I listened to it once yesterday. Welcome to Spin It. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Spin It, the podcast for people who would rather be listening to music. I'm James, and with me is Connor. Say hello to the people. Uh, I was supposed to say something there, and I panicked. You're supposed to. <laughs> uh, what I said was uh, say hello. <laughs> so your, your logical response would be to say hello. Uh, hello! <laughs> I feel like I had something to say there, and I guess I didn't. You did. You did have something to say there. It was a salutation, a greeting for the audience. Hello, greetings, good morrow, welcome back, audience. Yeah, welcome back. How was that? That was good, that was great. Like you heard us talk about in the intro, this week we're talking about Nevermind by Nirvana, and I'm really excited for this episode. I've been amped up for this since we finished the last one. I have a confession to make. Uh, I may or may not have listened to the wrong thing. What? <laughs> you listened to the wrong <laughs> thing? I may or may not have accidentally listened to, never mind, the deluxe edition like album that they did that has a million extra songs on it. Oh, okay. I, I was listening to it and I was like, how are we not through this yet? And I was like, this is really long. And then I went to like put my notes down and I saw the track list. I was like, there's way less songs on this track list than what I just listened to. Yep. Yeah, you're right. You're <laughs> correct about that. So there's a, there's an edition called the Super Deluxe Edition. This got 70 songs and is four hours and 15 minutes long. Did you listen to all four hours and 15 minutes of this? No. When did you realize no. that this was not right? <laughs> uh, I don't want to say. I'll say. Uh, it was definitely at least close to two hours in. Holy crap. <laughs> you probably realized something was up when they started playing songs for the second time. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Track 20 is Drain You, and you went, Drain You? This sounds familiar. Yep, yep, that's exactly oh what happened. Oh my gosh. Okay, well, you scared me for a minute when you said I listened to the wrong thing. I was like, did you listen to a different Nevermind? <laughs> did you listen to a different Nirvana album? Like, are we going to have to postpone this recording? Yeah, so I made it the majority of the way through this one, like, it was close to the two hour mark when I realized something was off. <laughs> My gosh. So next week, I'll just send you a link to exactly the thing you need to check out. And then you could save yourself a whole hour. Well, that's what I get for just clicking on the first one. Yeah, that's true. Consider this a lesson then, I guess. So uh, let's talk a little bit about your experience with Nirvana. Yeah, this was an interesting one to listen to because it was almost just about every other song I was really familiar with. So it was like a weird thing of, oh, I love this song. This is a great song. Then, oh, this is new. I haven't heard this. And, oh, I love this song. You know, it was just back and forth the whole time. It was fun. My first experience with this album years and years ago was kind of the same way, except it wasn't every other song. It was just the front half of the album because I had never heard anything past about the midway point. I don't know where I've heard all these songs. No? I mean, a lot of them are pretty prevalent. They just, they're around everywhere on the radio and in movies and TV and stuff. Yeah, no, it's definitely something that like I've heard them on. I thought it was from maybe like a video game. But when I looked up that video game soundtrack, the songs weren't there. So I don't know where I've heard them. Oh. You just know them. I hear the song and there's this like tickle of a memory of like hearing that song over and over as if I was playing a video game and it kept looping. But apparently I can't place the video game. I looked up a list of Nirvana songs in video games. There was a nice little list I found. And the only ones that sounded familiar were Guitar Hero and it was definitely not those. A phantom familiarity. Let's talk about Nirvana as a band. This is only the first band we've done in an official episode and only the second we've done overall, including Kings of Leon. It's true. They formed in Aberdeen, Washington in 1987, and the founding members were Kurt Cobain, who did the vocals and the guitar, and Chris Novoselic, who was the bass player. The two of them met in high school, and they went through five different drummers in their foundational years before they landed on Dave Grohl in 1990, and he would be the lasting drummer for the band. So he'd be with them from 1990 until they disbanded in 1994. 
Yeah, I was surprised. I, I again, I knew who Nirvana was, but I was surprised to find out they only had three albums total. <laughs> yeah, for all the people talk about them and all the fame that they've earned since their active years, they only released three records, and only two of them were on a major label. Their first was called Bleach in 1989, and they released that on a smaller indie label. This record, Nevermind, was their major label debut, and it came out in 1991. And then In Utero, the band's final album, came out in 1993. After In Utero in 1993, Kurt Cobain suffered an unfortunate fate and passed away, presumably by suicide in 94. Yeah, he did. So the band disbanded after that. Dave Grohl and Chris Novoselic went their separate ways. And Dave Grohl went and formed the Foo Fighters, who are still doing things today, actually. That's probably Nirvana's most prominent contemporary legacy. Out there fighting all that Foo. There's a lot of Foo to fight. (laughs) Despite their prominence and their status as this flagship band of the 90s, and really like Generation X... They were kind of the band from 1990 and onward. They really didn't win as many awards as you might think during that time. There were a handful that came in after Kurt Cobain's death. But what you'll see is they got nominated for a lot of things and didn't necessarily win a whole lot. And I think a lot of that has to do with grunge being a newer mainstream genre. But they did a lot to pioneer that. They were nominated for Favorite New Heavy Metal or Hard Rock Artist at the American Music Awards in 1992. They didn't win then, but they won the normal variant when they were no longer new in 1995. They were nominated in 1994 for the top Billboard 200 group. They did win a Brit Award for International Breakthrough Act in 1993. They were nominated for seven Grammys from 1992 through 96 that ranged from Best Alternative Music Performance to Best Rock Song, a bunch of other stuff in between. They finally won Best Alternative Music Performance for the very, very famous MTV Unplugged in New York live recording. It's often been called one of the greatest live albums of all time. Never heard of it. That's that's a okay, now you have. You can't say that anymore. (laughs) Their biggest successes probably came on MTV for their music videos. They won five video music awards, including three for songs that are on Nevermind. Smells Like Teen Spirit won two, and In Bloom took home one. And they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2014, their very first year of eligibility. So that's pretty cool. Huh, first year. Does that happen a lot? I don't know. It happens sometimes. It's not like unheard of, but it's certainly an accomplishment. You know, that means people pretty much immediately recognize that you deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. Gotcha. Like I mentioned, a little bit of trivia here. Kurt Cobain and Chris Novoselic were high school friends. Their first band was a Creedence Clearwater Revival tribute band. And they picked the name Nirvana because Kurt Cobain, quote, wanted a name that was kind of beautiful or nice and pretty instead of a mean, raunchy punk name. They had a lot of mean, raunchy punk names in the queue, though. They did. When I was doing my factor spin research, there was a lot of interesting name ideas thrown around. Yeah. What were some of your favorite rejected Nirvana names? Uh, it's a toss up between Skid Row and Fecal Matter, probably. Can you imagine if this band was called Fecal Matter? I mean, that's a punk name. Honestly, I think the weirdest of them was probably Ted Ed Fred. Ted Ed Fred. Yeah, that's that's fun to say. Try saying that three times fast. Ted Ed Fred, Ted Ed Fred, Ted Ed Fred. Oh, wasn't that hard? It wasn't that hard at all, no. All right, well, still. People probably would have had him confused for being guys named Ted, Ed, and Fred when it's really Kurt, Chris, and Dave. Let's talk about Nevermind. It's a mix of older Nirvana songs that they already had in the chamber and newer songs that some of them didn't even have lyrics until they were in the middle of the recording process. Yeah, yeah, that was another thing I've read that Cobain loved to just not care about the lyrics. He would be writing them right before or even during the recording sometimes because he cared more about the music. That's it, yeah. He takes this music first, lyrics second mindset to a lot of the songs. And I think it's got a really powerful effect that we'll see play out in just a little bit. They gave this album to someone to mix it, and when he mixed the album, they didn't like it. They said it sounded too polished. And if you're listening to this album, and you think that this sound is too polished, you must really be trying to make some heavy music. I think it was pretty polished. No, yeah, it's a little bit. It's clean. They wanted it to be grungy. It's it's clean for the most part. Grungy, yeah, exactly. I just think that fact really helps like illustrate just how punk they wanted to be, like how off the rails and over the top they were trying to go for. Classic Ted Ed Fred. Please don't call them Ted Ed Fred for the rest of the episode. (laughs) No promises. (laughs) All right. So to illustrate kind of the status of grunge music across America at the time, the record label's initial goal was to sell 250,000 copies of Nevermind. That might sound like a lot. 250,000 is pretty big for my standards. I could do it. You could sell 250,000 copies of what? I don't know. Name something. I'll do it. Bananas. Well, you should sell 250,000 episodes of this podcast. (laughs) 
So their initial goal was 250,000 copies sold. This album came out at the end of September, and by Christmas, it was selling 400,000 copies a week in the United States alone. Yeah, but how many weeks did it do that? Because if it only did it for one week, that, that's kind of a misleading statistic. I don't think it's that misleading with statistics <laughs> to say that they almost doubled their lifetime sales goal in one week. I think it's pretty impressive. But that just gives you an idea of how much Nirvana blew things out of the water. How totally unexpected this wave of grunge exposure was. So today, for example, Smells Like Teen Spirit has over a billion streams on Spotify and a billion views on YouTube. I mean, those are some big numbers. Now that's a lot. That's up there with like... It's Gangnam Style levels of popularity. Gangnam Style. (laughs) Oh oh gosh. (laughs) That's just the digital stuff too. I mean, add in all their physical sales. Add in their... 400,000 a week, at least for one week. This record and these songs have been played a lot. Getting hung up on this at least one week. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) When they released Nevermind, they actually decided not to even tour it in America, and they just did a handful of shows. That's why it was so popular. They were like, the only way I can hear this in America is if I buy it. That's the way you've heard most music there or the radio. All right, fair enough. Mm -hmm. Here's a fun little fact. Personally, I really am into the behind the scenes stuff about songwriting and royalties and who gets paid what for songs. The band initially had split songwriting royalties equally, 33% to each of them. But in 1992, Kurt Cobain wanted to change this and take 75% to more appropriately reflect his contributions. Wait, he wanted 75% for himself, leaving 25% to split between the other two? Yeah, 12 and a half each. That's crazy. That's a lot. Yeah. But I have imagine you were about to say 50 and then the other two were going to take 25 no he wanted to take 75 and you might be surprised by this but they were actually okay with it Novoselic and Grohl were on board with that change moving forward but they kind of had to draw the line when Kurt said he wanted it to be grandfathered in for the songs on Nevermind and they said whoa hold on oh well now he's just getting greedy I mean you're writing lyrics right before they recorded you're not putting in that much work. I mean he did put in a lot I mean he's kind of the face of the band and certainly their most well-known member yeah, that's true. Most of my facts are about him. So, <laughs> well, all right then. Uh, is that all you got about the album? Yeah, I think that pretty much covers the basics of the record. You know what that means? No, I uh, I don't. Oh, it means we're done talking about the basics of the record. Oh, I thought we were about to transition into some fact or spin. Oh. Yeah, yeah, we could do that. You don't seem too hyped about it. Is it because you did bad the last two weeks in a row? Yeah, I've done really bad in the last two episodes, and I just have to redeem myself here. I don't know if I will. Well, you'll be happy to know the mixtaper is on a date night tonight, so you get me for Factor Spin today. Oh, great, thanks. I've been waiting all these weeks. I've missed you doing Factor Spin. You haven't done it since the first or second episode. Yeah, it was like the test episode Uh, was the last time I did it. So, you know, maybe I'll take it easy on you. Well, welcome back. Should we just jump right into it? I don't know how the mixtaper usually does these things. Yeah. Let's jump right in. You tell me a fact, and then I'll tell you whether it's a true fact or a fake fact. A spin, if you will. All right. Well, my first fact is that Kurt Cobain once spit all over Elton John's piano. All right. Coming out swinging today. (laughs) So when you say spit all over, I need you to define that a little better. Like on the keys? All over the keys. All over the keys. Okay. Just to cover his piano head to toe and spit, douse it. (laughs) Was he mad at Elton John? No, he was mortified that he did this. Okay, so he didn't know it was Elton John's piano. No. So he spit all over the keys of a random piano? Where was the piano at? Uh, At the 1992 MTV Video Music Awards. Oh. Yeah, they performed, and Kurt thought or had been told or something that Axl Rose from Guns N' Roses was supposed to be up next to use the piano, and so he spit all over it. And instead, Elton John came out and performed and had to use the slobbered up piano. So I do know that Nirvana and Guns N' Roses really had a bit of a feud going on. Mm-hmm. Do you know anything else about what their feud was over? Why they were mad at Guns N' Roses? Cobain had a revulsion to macho behavior that was hostile to women or to gays. You know what? There are a couple songs on this very record that deal with those same topics. Yeah, Cobain felt that Guns N' Roses were the poster boys for that toxicity and specifically Axl Rose. Yeah, that's fair. And so in an ultimate move of bitter irony, he spat all over the keyboard of Elton John, a famously gay man. Yep, that's the fact. (laughs) Oh no, (laughs) I didn't even think about that irony. 
Yeah, okay. I think I'm going to say that this fact is true. Going to go with true. Yeah, and if it's another one that you've really crafted, then shame on me. But I know so many true things about this. I know that they were at the VMAs that year. I know they hated Guns N' Roses and had a feud. And if there's one person who would spit all over another person's property out of spite, it's Mr. Kurt Cobain. So I'm going to say true. You're off to a better start than you've been because this is indeed a true fact. All right. I'm happy. I feel like a weight's been lifted off my shoulders with a true under my belt, with a win under my belt, rather. Uh, Musician Jason Everman is credited on Nirvana's first album, Bleach, as a guitarist, even though he didn't play a single note on the album. Okay. Now, I've never heard of Jason Everman. Is he a famous guitarist otherwise? Does he play other instruments or in another band? He was brought in as a second guitarist for recordings and performances and things, I think. Okay. But this was after they'd already finished the recordings for Bleach. Oh, they brought him in after they finished the recordings? Yeah, that's why he doesn't play anything on them. Right, sure. I know that the band famously does not like to overdub things. So I can understand producers wanting to bring in other guitarists and instrumentalists to do more dubs and to cover spaces they might have in production. But I guess they just decided not to need any of that. Well, again, it's weird because he was brought in after they were done. So I don't don't really know what the thought process was. I don't know. There there are a lot of complicated rules around unions for musicians and stuff Mm. where you have to be paid a certain amount if a recording that happened at the session you were a part of is used, even if you didn't play on that recording. Uh, Well, that's not why he was credited. In order to produce this album, it cost a total sum of $606.17. Wow. Compare that to Kanye's $3 million for My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy the other week. That's insane. What a budget record. Yeah. And Jason fronted the bill, so they credited him on the album. (laughs) Why credit him as a guitarist and not just like as a special thanks? I don't know. Uh, Is this a true fact? Did this happen? Oh, tough. This is tough. Yeah, sure. I think this happened. It was an indie label, so I can totally believe them wanting to outsource the funding. They're going with true. You know, this is a true fact. I think this sounds plausible, so I'm going to say true. This is indeed a true fact. Yes. Really? Yeah, Jason Everman paid the bill and was credited on Bleach. I'm pleasantly surprised by that one. You mentioned comparing it to other budgets. Nevermind had a budget of 65000 Wow. Yep, and that's still nothing compared to Kanye, as you already said. <laughs> I guess that's the difference that a major label will make. Speaking of different things, random segue doesn't really apply, but Kurt Cobain had to live in his car. All right, all right. When did he have to live in his car? After they finished recording Nevermind. Oh, oh, I thought you were going to say this was maybe before they were famous, but this is in the middle of their fame. Yep. How long did he live in his car? Not too long, just until he was able to find a new home. Oh, why was he out of the old home? Uh, He got evicted. He came back from recording and discovered he'd been evicted. Huh. Was it because he didn't pay the rent? Was he just a bad tenant? I mean... Very little information exists on uh, about this fact that I could find. I just thought it was interesting. Assuming it's true. It'd be very interesting, assuming it's true. Even on Nevermind, that he had allegedly just recorded, he recorded Something in the Way as a song where he kind of puts himself in the shoes of a homeless person that lives under a bridge. Yeah, maybe that's where I inspired this life from. Who knows? It could very well be. I don't know if I believe this one. He certainly didn't get evicted because he couldn't pay the rent, I don't think, because the band was, if anything, more successful than they had been prior to the recording of Nevermind. I think this one's false. I'm going to go with fake fact. Go with a fake fact. Mm-hmm. This is a spin. This is not a spin. Oh, shoot. It is a true fact. They recorded it in Wisconsin, and he found that he'd been evicted from his apartment in Olympia. Just for a few weeks, he slept in the backseat of his Valiant all the information that there really is about it. I just thought it was interesting because as you said, it happened kind of after they had already kind of gotten popular. So it's not like this was when he was on the outs and didn't have money or whatever. Yeah, this isn't a starving artist phase. Yeah. Wow, that one surprised me. That one had all the makings of a fake fact. Yeah, I got one more for you. Bring it on. Nirvana was once kicked out of their own party. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Who had the authority to kick them out of their own party? Security. Oh, they must have been doing something insecure. What kind of a party was it? Just a random... It was a release party for Nevermind. Oh. (laughs) Awesome. What were they doing that was so rowdy that security had to step in? Well, first off, they showed up drunk. Okay, yeah, that checks out. (laughs) And it started by them throwing watermelon and dressing at each other. That also checks out. And it erupted into a full-fledged 
food fight. Uh, and after, you know, security stepped in and stopped it, they asked them to leave. I'm guessing security had to know that they were actually the band, right? That they were the reason for the party. I assume they did, but they were like really, really drunk. Uh-huh. Watermelon at the Nevermind party. <laughs> Watermelon and salad dressing. Yeah, they were throwing salad dressing at each other. Did they like have squeeze bottles? Did they use like squirt guns or were they flinging like ladles? How'd they start this fight? You know, it, uh, surprisingly enough, none of the literature said if it was ladle or bottle. Really? Man, none of the reports, like no, none of the eyewitnesses. I think ladle make for a more interesting food fight. Yeah, well, it works like a catapult. Plus, it's a fancy party. I mean, you're not going to have squeeze bottles at a fancy party. It was probably ladles. But is it true? You ask that all the time, and I'm never sure. <laughs> How many people were at this party? I mean, what was the guest list like? It was a pretty big party. It was the release party. Sure, yeah. It wasn't a private party. I mean, it probably was a private party, but I mean, it wasn't like just a small gathering of people. Yeah, not a charades night at the Cobain household. Yeah, charades night. Dude, charades at the Cobain household. That would have been a fun time. I bet you he was really good at charades. Uh... (laughs) You didn't have a response to that? (laughs) No, I didn't have anything to say to that. I don't know. (laughs) This fact. Last fact? Don't get it wrong. Seems true enough. It's an outrageous thing for them to get thrown out of their own release party. But I totally could see it, so I'm going to say true. You're going to go true again. Yeah, and I don't know if I should because they've all been true. It's true, they have. So you're going with true. That's your final decision. They actually threw watermelon and salad dressing in ladles, well, maybe ladles, at one another. Yes. Final decision, final fact. All right, it is indeed a true fact. I went all true facts this week. Yeah, wow, <laughs> all true. This is, that was hard. I found just so many interesting ones. I don't know. I thought all of those were interesting. I didn't know which ones to cut. So I was like, you know what? The mixtapers on leave. So I just gave you a bunch of true ones this week. Wow. That was a surprise. I was not expecting that. I feel like I'm back in my groove. Yeah, you improved. So yay. Now you'll be able to come in next week swing and win the mixtapers. Yeah. Yeah. We'll have to ask him how his date went. And I'm already hard cringing at what that bit is going to look like. But we'll deal with that. We'll cross that bridge when we live under it. (laughs) That sound, as you know, that concludes Factor Spin. (laughs) So... On the cover art. Yeah, and as is tradition at this point, if you haven't listened to Nevermind yet and you're interested in the context for the rest of the show, hop out now. This is your this is your exit ramp. Take a listen to that and then come back and... Get out of here. Go. What are you waiting for? This isn't Ferris Bueller. (laughs) But welcome back if you did just jump away and listen for a little bit. Let's talk about this record, starting with the very iconic, for good or bad reasons, the cover art. Now, I know what you're all thinking. I'll answer your question right away. Yes, that's a real baby in a real pool. And more importantly, a real dollar bill. Well, yeah, but it was photoshopped in. They didn't have him in there with a fish hook. Yeah, but it's still a real dollar bill. (laughs) <laughs> anyway, uh, his name is Spencer Eldon. Spencer Eldon. And he has mixed feelings about being on this album cover. I would too if the greatest thing I ever did in life happened when I couldn't even remember it. Sorry, not the throw shade at Spencer Eldon. but Well, but I mean, this is a pretty lofty accomplishment to be the face of a renowned record for a band that almost defined a generation. Yeah. Here's a fun fact you might not know. Did you know Spencer Eldon almost didn't get the part? No, I didn't know that. They shot this cover art twice once with a girl baby and once with a boy baby oh and then they decided to go with the boy baby for the final cut did they how can you tell i'm just kidding don't answer that (laughs) there's a legitimate quote uh well that's the thing is they they did want it the band saw this picture and they loved it and the label said hold on a minute we can't put this on the cover like we're trying to sell records to people people have to buy this yeah and kurt cobain said no way we're changing this like you have to put it out as it is i won't budge on this and eventually he did compromise and the label was able to sell the record with a sticker over the uh questionable parts so that's the album cover a baby in a swimming pool chasing after a dollar on the hook i think the meaning has been pretty widely discussed and debated and dissected and what most people land on is that it's a metaphor for how people chase wealth pretty much from the time they come out of the womb until the time they're in the grave and it's just a visual representation of that Ed and fred getting real deep Yeah, let's go ahead and break down the album track by track. We'll kind of go through it. I've got some dumb things to say. (laughs) The first song, maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't. Smells Like Teen Spirit is the name of it. Never heard of it. Never? Never heard of it. Never mind. Never mind. I've heard of it. But oh, darn. I had a joke. I had a joke I was going to (laughs) use at the beginning of the episode. (laughs) Was it that joke? Yes. (laughs) Don't patronize me. 
Sorry, I, I'm just saying. I made the joke first. Smells like teen spirit. I do have a quick note before we get into the actual song. Yeah. As a kid, I didn't know that the song was called Smells Like Teen Spirit. Yeah? What did you think it was called? I thought it was called Smells Like Teen Sprite. Teen Sprite. No joke. This isn't This isn't a joke. This is legitimately what I thought as a child. <laughs> this is legit. Why? Uh, because I, uh, I can't read, apparently. When did you realize <laughs> the truth? I, I can tell you when. What happened was I probably saw it once, misread it, and never thought twice about it. Sure, and it's not like the lyrics smells like Teen Spirit come up in the song. What do you think Teen Sprite would smell like? Lemon and lime, but like angsty. Angsty lemon and lime? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, probably. So they only recorded three takes for this song, and most of what they used on the recording that we hear is from the second one. Interesting. Yeah, can you believe, like, they only played it through three times, and it was good enough to be this multi-billion listens single. It's got some interesting lyrics. It does. It's got an interesting title, too. Supposedly, the title is a reference to a perfume that Cobain's then-girlfriend would wear. But he didn't know that. No, yeah, Kurt Cobain didn't know that. It was graffitied on his bedroom wall, wasn't it? Yeah, his girlfriend's friend wrote on the wall, Kurt smells like teen spirit, because (laughs) it was a reference to his girlfriend's perfume. Her name was Toby. Veil, by the way. She was in a band called Bikini Kill. Bikini Kill? Bikini Kill, you heard me, yeah. Huh. Yeah, and Kurt calls this a nonsense phrase, and he modeled the entire song after the style of the Pixies. Well, this whole song is kind of a nonsense phrase, so I'll I'll believe it. A little bit, yeah. He actually got really tired of this song really quickly. I imagine. Yeah, everyone goes to see the Nirvana show, and that's the one song that you have to go out and play night after night, relentlessly. So he tried actually to scrub it from their set list as much as he could. And actually, I saw a video of a performance that they did for, it's like a Top of the Pops show in Britain, but they make you sing live over a recorded track. So the band being who they are, they decided to go all out, and just blatantly fake everything. You know, he brings his voice down a whole octave when he sings and sings it really low. He doesn't actually play the guitar, but does this robotic strum. <laughs> Nova Selich, he spins the bass like all around his body really weird. It's so funny. You should go watch it when we're done here. But, you know, Kurt Cobain was right-handed, but he played a left-handed guitar. Is this like the left-handed ice cream scoop thing or it doesn't really matter no it does matter it really does matter when you play guitar because the strings go in a different order you'll see even on the performance that we mentioned earlier the mtv unplugged you can see him have an acoustic guitar but he holds it upside down so that he could play with his left hand and the strings will all be you know reversed like that yeah he's one of the most famous left-handed guitarists of all time that's a true fact yeah you're right that's correct ding ding Again, the words are something, but the music's wonderful. I, this song's, again, very fun to crank the bass up on and jam out to in a car. This is a rock out song. I don't know. There's there's some stuff behind the lyrics. I mean, yeah, there's, there is, but they're still weird. Yeah, a little <laughs> bit. The first line is, load up on guns, bring your friends. Drug reference. A little bit, yeah. But it's a nice play on the double meaning of load, because, you know, you load your gun, you load up, you get a lot. Yeah. This isn't the only song in this album, too, that he re- refers to, like, playing with guns. Well, yeah, to put bring your guns to play with your friends right back to back here. It's, I don't know what people thought of it at the time, but I think the tone of these lines has drastically been altered, given the nature of his death. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely like in hindsight doesn't look the greatest one of the things that nirvana likes to do musically is they use a lot of half steps that are consecutive notes on the scale i hate you by the way why i've started looking at that i don't know what any of it means but i like try to listen for interesting things to ask you about now in the music yeah yeah well they do chromatic notes a lot and it sounds flat it sounds like it's not a part of the scale sometimes and it might not be I know what a half step is. A half step would be going up to the flat or sharp, depending on which direction you're going. Bingo. See, everybody in the audience, I know things. <laughs> Occasionally, yeah, we'll get you something you can digest. The pre-chorus, he sings, hello, 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 how low. It's a cool play on words. Yeah. He like puts extra emphasis on the how low. It's like, hello, 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 how low. It, like He like emphasizes that one. He doesn't let it slip by. He really brings it out. And then he breaks into the famous chorus. Here we are now. Entertain us. I feel stupid and contagious. It kind of fits with the, again, all the greetings. Like you've met somebody, you've gone past the pleasantries, and now you're expected to like put on a show as yourself, you know, like to engage in some sort of 
conversation that both sides are going to find entertaining. Actually, that line, here we are now, entertain us, is a thing that Cobain used to say when he would show up at a party. He would say to the hosts, here we are, entertain us. Oh. Yeah, and apparently... Apparently, they would be plenty good at entertaining themselves as long as there was some salad dressing around. Yeah, yeah, no wonder they were always getting kicked out of parties. <laughs> yeah, but it's this pressure to be on all the time. Here we are, entertain us. I feel stupid and contagious. It's very self-deprecating. It is. I don't know. It feels like an anxiety-induced chorus. Turn out the lights because it's less dangerous. With the lights on, you know, spotlights on us, there's this pressure to perform. With the lights out, we don't have to worry about that. You really hit the nail on the head with the anxiety-inducing a bit because I feel like the way the music builds around the chorus as the chorus happens, it's building on itself kind of like an anxiety attack would. Yeah. My favorite part of the chorus, though, is the alcohol references that are there after the entertainers line because, you know, mulatto and albino are both terms to describe maybe the way somebody looks, but they're also both types of alcohol. So is a mosquito. Yeah, all the old-fashioned cocktails. Alcohol tends to increase people's libidos, so they all kind of go together. Yeah, everything fits. But it is really weird just to hear him sing those terms back to back with no like space between them. Yeah, maybe he is trying to sing about alcohol as a way to loosen up socially, to not feel this performance anxiety. Yeah, that's probably exactly what it is. But yeah, to hear him sing that with so little context, I think he definitely picked those combinations of cocktails just because of the way that they sounded. And then at the end of the chorus, he does this little hey-yay thing where the guitar and the voice voice or in sync the guitar does a nice little string bend and it's so satisfying is that what that's called is that what that's called a string bend that was one of the things i wrote down to ask you about well yeah you know when you play a note on the fret of a guitar it only plays the one note if you want to slide that note into another note you push the string upward which creates more tension on it so the pitch rises Mm. it's a lot more common in rock music than some of the other stuff we've listened to but that's what it is he starts off the second verse and he sings i'm worse at what i do best and for this gift I feel blessed like even his strongest strengths someone out there he thinks does it better than him and it's a blessing to be relieved from the pressure of maybe having to be the best at something I think that's such a profound line he ends the song interestingly with the a denial yeah he ends it by repeating a denial a denial a denial and then the guitar fades out into oblivion just nothingness it's a good ending to the song yeah it's a fitting ending for the song i spelled denial wrong in my notes a denial that's why you hit with the hammer (laughs) the second song on the record then after smells like teen spirit is in bloom and this is another one of the really famous or popular songs from this record and i love the chord progression that this one uses it's another instance where they just use a half step to really accentuate their point and their melody it starts on a g sharp and then it goes to an f to a d sharp to an f sharp so you see how the f and the f sharp are both used in the same chord progression that's not normal what makes it not normal it's just unusual to use two major chords that are a half step apart in such close proximity in a song like this that kind of makes sense it'd be like if you were in a certain key in a trumpet piece and then you just randomly threw in a note that didn't belong in that key over and over be like why why not just change the key a little bit yeah and he does it again at the end of the verses it goes from a g to a g sharp chord which is only that half step increment Mm, yeah chord progression aside the song starts out with just the voice the drums and the bass for about half of the first verse it's super low key and i really love that change from the heavy guitar and like the pounding that was all the way through teen spirit it's a very dark start to the song with the lyrics too i mean sell the kids for food isn't like a happy note to start a song off on no yeah it's not i really appreciate his songwriting craft here he's got a very strict five syllable line rule in the verses every line has to be five syllables hard stop no exceptions and i think that forces him to be really creative with some of his word choices because every beat matters so the first verse goes sell the kids for food weather changes moods spring is here again reproductive glands and it's this wild way to talk about people's changing tendencies you know we need money we need food sell the kids but then when spring comes along we can kind of take from the earth we can start to provide for ourselves reproductive glands (laughs) which is the opposite of sell the kids for food it kind of feels like spring new life bring in more so it's just an interesting interesting set of rules that that he restricts himself to here i love that that was great you did a deep analysis on each of the other three lines and then just went reproductive. Well, they speak for themselves. They speak for the, they, they have one job and it's to reproduce. 
The run-up into the chorus is huge. The drums in this song are almost as good as they are at any point on this album. This is really a standout moment for Dave Grohl. It's just building into that chorus, I think. I don't know. The drums were drums were I I kind of like them better on some of the other songs. They are really good on the other songs too, but it's definitely a, a highlight reel moment. Fair enough. Yeah, they they, they stand out here more, especially how the beginning works. Yeah, with the slower beginning, it explodes with snare drum. <laughs> The chorus is where Kurt decides to make fun of uh, probably people like us, I think, <laughs> who who aren't really grunge people, who just aren't a part of that crowd or that scene. Speak for yourself. I'm a grunge head. Is that what they call themselves, grunge heads? I'm going to go ahead and say, if you have to ask, uh, <laughs> you probably aren't. <laughs> But he wrote it about new fans that would show up to their concerts as they got popular and would sing along to their songs without really bothering to understand the meaning. So that's the whole chorus. He's the one who likes all our pretty songs and he likes to sing along. And like we talked about with Axl Rose, you know, Kurt's disdain for the machismo. That's why he uses shooting his gun here. He likes to shoot his gun. It's to take a jab at the super manly people out there, the the people that are tough guys, you know. And he intentionally wrote this chorus with a very sing-alongable melody to just provoke people that to kind of provoke people that ah oh, that's clever to sing along yeah can you imagine i mean just to be in the crowd singing he don't know what it means along <laughs> with him that's exactly what he wanted to happen oh what that reminded me of a story i was reading about where when they were on tour one time they had some all-female band opening for them and the crowd like booed them off stage and was really mean to them mm-hmm. and so kurt got like really angry uh, as we've learned he was very against that kind of attitude towards women and minorities and things uh so he wanted to just cancel the show and send everybody home but the rest of the band kind of talked him out of that because they would have to refund all the money and stuff and they said the better revenge would be to go out there and not play any of their popular songs Mm -hmm. and so they went out on the stage and they would do like the opening riff to a popular song to get the crowd worked up and then switch into like some, you know, C-level track that nobody really knew. And that's all they performed was their lesser song. Oh, yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, there's not a lot of bands out there that would do something like that, regardless of the circumstances. Yeah. Well, good for them. The second verse is just all about people abusing what's been given to them. He uses this established metaphor of the land and growing food. People just take more and more from nature, always expecting nature to give them more. Just like people are starting to demand more and more from himself and from the band as they grow in popularity. Fans don't care about the band's needs. They just want what they want. I don't know. This song isn't really short, but I think because the verses are so terse and not very wordy. Ooh, that was a big word, terse. The whole irony of that is it's a short word. I don't know. But because the verses are so terse and not really wordy, it just feels like a short and sweet track. The terse verse. Yeah, Kurt Cobain is the master of the terse verse. But I think that will push us right on into track three, Come As You Are. The next one that I recognized. Yeah, another very popular one. So Come As You Are was intended to be the main single from the record because they thought it would have more popular appeal. You know, to the unseasoned grunge fan, this was going to be way more of what they were used to hearing. But obviously, uh, that was not the most exciting idea for Cobain. This is an interesting one because it goes through several verses and a refrain before it ever hits the chorus. And the chorus is once again about guns. That's true. Actually, in uh, Aberdeen, Washington, Cobain's birthplace, the Welcome to Aberdeen sign has a little addendum underneath it that says, Come as you are. I saw that. What's interesting with this song, and I think what it really illustrates, is that even though Nirvana has this big in-your-face sound, they do it in a very simple way. You know, it's three guys with instruments playing their hearts out. There's not really any gimmicks. Like Kanye last week was taking pieces from everything and chopping stuff up, putting it all together, and this is almost the complete opposite of that. You know, they did some production, and a lot a good production that just goes you don't need a gimmick you don't need to try extra hard you know to make something like that you can just sit down and play from your heart yeah and you know like i mentioned they don't even really do overdubs a ton so what you hear them playing is what they actually would sound like which is cool and that's just so impressive the song opens with this guitar riff and boy do i love it it's not normally something you can hear a guitar do because guitars don't usually go that low but for this song he tunes his entire guitar in what's called d standard tuning everything goes down a whole step a whole step that's correct that's crazy instead of the normal guitar tuning which would be e a d g b e the tuning goes d g c f a d 
Uh-huh. It's interesting. It gives that guitar that really low-end sound that is just unique. Nice. Right. So you mentioned the chorus takes a while to come in. And he starts with this first verse where every line kind of ironically contradicts itself, or at least the piece before it, you know? He says, come as you are, as you were, as I want you to be, which is like, come as you are. No, wait, don't. Come as what I want you to be. Come as a friend. No, wait, come as an enemy. Take your time. Hurry up. You have agency. No, you don't. It's this weird dichotomy, this weird back and forth. Yeah, that is what it is doing, isn't it? Huh. Yeah, and when he talked about the song, Kurt Cobain would say, it's pretty much just a commentary of how you should expect people to respond in a given situation. You know, however you want to interpret that. I I mean, memoria is like Latin for memory or something like that, right? Kind of. It comes from that word, right? It does. Well, first of all, it's got like the root of moria in it, which is for things being dead or dulled. But... Memoria is also a classical term that describes a way to write prose and poetry where think like mnemonic devices and rote memorization of things. That's memoria. It's a tactic for committing things to memory. And combined with that moria root... It could almost be like a dead friendship, right? It's like, come as you are, no way come as you were, like maybe back when we were friends. And it says, as a friend, as an old enemy... Come as a friend, come as an enemy. It's almost like maybe it's talking about maybe a dead friendship, remembering that. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting angle that I don't think I have seen anyone else talking about. Which means it's absolutely right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sure, sure. He's got this refrain where he repeats memoria, and then the second verse starts, and there's this amazing subtlety in the second verse where he sings, Come doused in mud, soaked in bleach. So right off the bat, we have this contrast between being filthy and being very clean. And it's this nice way to provide a visual example for Come As You Are. And to the clever Nirvana fan, you might recognize that Bleach is the name of their debut album. But there's another layer to this. There was a Seattle anti-heroin campaign in the early 90s. They used the slogan, if doused in mud, soak in bleach. They're talking about dirty needles, soak them in bleach to reduce your risk of HIV. They say it's also a drug reference. And through that lens, the line also also kind of takes on this meaning like come as you are regardless of your addiction status drug use history anything like that it feels like a line that really levels the playing field beyond what we've already heard i read about that in my research and he ends the song like you mentioned with more talk about guns he yeah he ends the song with all choruses guitar solos and refrains you know there's not any more verses the whole song's dynamic changes right there at the end and he ends it by repeating i don't have a gun and no one really knows for sure what that means concretely but there's a spot at the end i don't know if you remember where he sings that and it overlaps a memoria that was an accident really yeah when they were recording he came in too early and when they listened to it back they said you know what i like that i think we'll keep it huh that's cool there's a couple other spots that i'll point out on this album where something like that happened but i think that's what makes this feel so uninhibited is because a lot of it or at least parts of it were done on the spot writing lyrics as he's recording you know spur of the moment decisions to keep mistakes in the recording yeah it's really interesting and it's something we haven't seen yet in any of the albums we've looked at so the next track is track number four. It's called Breed. This is what a Kurt Cobain breakup song sounds like. Yeah. Yep. It was probably inspired by his breakup with Toby Vale, the girlfriend about whom Smells Like Teen Spirit was coined. Now, according to Kurt himself, he said the song is, quote, getting into middle America, marrying at age 18, getting pregnant, stuck with a baby, and not wanting it. And that's where the term breed comes in. Oh, makes sense. Mm -hmm. They pretty obviously took a lot of inspiration from the Ramones on this track. You know, the kind of quintessential fathers of punk rock. This is one of the ones, this is another one where I said Dave Grohl just beats the crap out of those drums. He really lets them have it. This song, okay, I haven't brought it up yet. Nirvana's done it in a good chunk of these songs with their choruses. Uh But this was the first one that kind of bothered me. Yeah. You know I hate repetitive lyrics. I do. The amount of just I don't cares and she said throughout this song. They got to you finally, huh? They finally did. I don't care, 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 don't have a care. And then I don't mind, I don't mind, I don't mind. It finally got to me. <laughs> the endings of each of those were like they like spun it a bit. That was cool, but oh, uh, 
<laughs> if it wasn't for the music's really good in this song, it would have drove me insane. Yeah, I think a lot of it is meant to emulate the feeling of kind of going insane a little bit. I guess, you know, it, with what you told me about what the song's supposed to kind of be a reference to, it makes sense why it's so repetitive, right? It's like, you know, he's commenting on the, like you said, the getting married at 18 and just reproducing, being a cog in the reproductive machine. And that's kind of like what he's doing here. Just, I don't care. I don't care. I mean, he's just like spitting it out. He's just spitting out over and over again the, the same thing, you know? Mm-hmm. But yeah, it just feels like this urgency almost because there's not a lot of vocal melody in the I don't care I don't care I don't care it's just a droning note almost but the chorus is pretty interesting I like the chorus a lot even if you have even if you need I don't mean to stare we don't have to breed we could plant a house we could build a tree I don't even care we could have all three yeah, that is clever the little plant a house versus build a tree you know that's kind of the opposite of what it should be right it kind of feels almost sarcastic in a way where he's talking to this girl and he says yeah we can do whatever I don't care like I'll say whatever I have to say right now let's just get it over with get on with it it's kind of I think an expression of frustration frustration as if that's a stretch to say about anything on this record right yeah you know we talked about billy joel being a cynic and this is kind of that but it's not fun anymore do you have anything else to say about this one or are we moving on? No, I think that about wraps up Breed. So track number five is Lithium. Now, Cobain said this song is about a man whose girlfriend has died and he's trying to keep himself alive. Thus, we get this song that kind of is about really severe depression. And the title, Lithium, people speculate that it's a reference to lithium salts that are used to treat bipolar disorder and mm. other psychiatric ailments. That makes sense. Yeah. This is the song that tickles that memory the most. Oh, the one that you thought you should know? This is the one that really just is like, where do I know this song from? Like, it really just irritates me that I can't place where I know it from. This one may be one of the catchiest songs on the record. It's in contention for my favorite song. I haven't picked it yet, but it's in contention. After I listened to this before the podcast, this was stuck in my head constantly, on repeat. (laughs) And maybe it's just because the chorus is so simple. It's just a lot of yeahs over and over in the chorus. But again, this one didn't annoy me. (laughs) This one was good. It's done tastefully. The repetition is done tastefully, and it's not overdone to take a backtrack for a second to the bipolar thing and the uh the duality of that with lithium kind of being the remedy for it each of these lines has this duality to it there's an upside and a downside to each so you'll like you'll notice the use of something like that's okay to indicate the shift between something that's negative and something that's positive i'm so happy because today i found my friends they're in my head he says i'm so ugly but that's okay because so so are you and we can't look at ourselves anyway we broke our mirrors he sings light my candles i found god but now everything is in a daze so it's this really interesting back and forth this tug of war between feeling negative things and then putting positive spins on them that also still leave you with this hollow feeling nothing ever is really satisfying it's just maybe not as bad as i thought it was but still (laughs) and on those moments where it pivots from one point of view to the other it's a little bit of that same half step flat note business so you can audibly hear the change I think the melody is what makes this song so catchy. Well, yeah. <laughs> I think the melody is what keeps it from getting annoyingly repetitive. Yes, yes, that's a big part of it. Because even though he repeats the word yeah over and over, the melody behind it is totally different, and that keeps it fresh. Yeah, it's different. <laughs> so for the second verse, one of the things I noticed that I think is really interesting is he sings, I'm not sad, instead of I'm happy. Yeah. It really helps us stay locked into that frame of mind and not get the wrong impression. You know, the absence of one is not the presence of the other. Just because you're not sad doesn't mean you're happy. I mean, emotions are on a spectrum, so. I think that's what I was trying to get at earlier with the duality of the lines, where there's a shift and it's just not as bad. It's not sad, but it's not happy. So you said you didn't like the end of this song, this this was too repetitive at the end yeah i like you i'm not gonna crack i miss you i love you i'll kill you i'm not gonna crack it just went on a little just a little bit too long it does go on a long time just a little too long and in this case even though he does change the words he doesn't alter the melody so it's kind of the opposite of the refrain the yeahs in that sense yeah i don't know i think this change between all the wild and crazy stuff happening in the first half of the line compared with the stability of i'm not gonna crack really illustrates this speaker determination to keep going. 
going, even after the death of his significant other and this trial that he's going through emotionally. Can we move on to the next song? Yeah, we can talk about Polly. Because Polly was a song I'm not even certain I've heard before. Yeah. And I think it is their best lyrical song on the album. Really? The, the music's no King Spirit or Lithium or anything like that. It's very s- subdued. Yes. Uh, but the lyrics are so well crafted. This metaphor that he does, uh, it's it's about a very serious and disturbing real life event. Yeah, it's about the kidnapping of a girl, a real thing that actually really happened. Of a 14-year-old girl. That. Yeah, and she did escape her captor, but suffice it to say, it was a terrible experience. Yeah. And so I think... No, you're right when you talk about the music being scaled back. It is just an acoustic guitar and the bass and one little cymbal crash. It's very much a low-key song, especially coming off of the high that was Reed, Lithium. It kind of just... This is just another one of those examples of Kurt Cobain showing, like, his soft side, right? Yeah. I mean, like, we we already talked about him, like, being really angry at his opening act getting booed and his hatred of machoism. And, like, this song, he wrote this song after hearing about that event and, you know, went with the poly metaphor for the poly want a cracker you know bird metaphor as kind of a way to put an innocent sounding metaphor on a very serious event and you know the nirvana didn't play this on a lot of charity events to help raise funds for this kind of stuff it's a very uh wholesome moment in nirvana's history uh, the, the the creation of this song it's a sad song with a wholesome history yes yeah yeah and i just love how he executes it you're so right though yeah because he takes this poly want a cracker this metaphor this line that we're so used to hearing in a silly way and then he just subverts all of our expectations about it flips it as far on its head as you can flip it it's put into this context that's totally jarring it's just unsettling it's again in contention for my favorite song that's how much i like the lyrics and here's another moment there's another false start on this record like we talked about on come as you are you can hear him repeat polly said before the third verse a bar too early oh yeah where he goes polly said polly says her back hurts yep and that's another instance where they decided just to keep it in there and they even incorporated that extra polly said into some of their live performances from that point on it like became a part of the actual song ah interesting yeah I know this whole record deals with mental health and depression and drug abuse in a really raw way, but this song, it really feels the darkest to me by like a long shot. Oh, absolutely. And we come out of this really emotional, really dark song into track number seven, Territorial Pissings. Now, this song title is a reference to animals marking their territory. This is the song that's specifically a critique about the machismo man who picks on minorities and women. Yeah. It opens with this really jarring request recording of Chris Novoselic singing come on now people smile on your brother etc try to love one another that's from an older 60s song and he just randomly decided to sing that before they recorded the song and they were like you know what this fits really well with what we're trying to say so naturally they just put it in the song <laughs> oh uh this song rounds off the top my top three yeah that's an interesting top three yeah you know the line at the beginning there when I was an alien cultures weren't opinions very uh, blunt line again yeah that's it that's the whole first verse it's another exercise in maximizing the terse verse this is another terse verse you're right and then he jumps right into the chorus which is also short where he says gotta find a way a better way i'd better wait talking about like someday when i have enough influence to make a difference i have to figure out how to try and fix this yeah verse two he says never met a wise man if so it's a woman and then verse three he says just because you're paranoid don't mean they're not after you the second verse is about women and even more so i mean it's about stupid men if there is a wise man you know it's a woman and then the third verse just feels really tongue-in-cheek it's a very it's i think he's calling out the kind of deflection that these people use right when they're like oh no you're just paranoid or you're over exaggerating that's not what's happening you're you're misinterpreting like that's the way they'll try to shrug off their behavior and he's like saying he's like yeah well just because i'm paranoid doesn't mean that that's not what's happening right yeah exactly that it's not an excuse for behavior yeah it's an interesting trio of verses that again just is so few words that makes such salient points two lines that's all you get two lines is all you get and as he proves to us that's really all you need to make your point yeah so after that song, he moves into Drain You. And unlike Smells Like Teen Spirit, Drain You was one of Kurt's personal favorites. And they tried to play this at most of their shows. So he was trying to scrub Teen Spirit from the set list, but he was trying to add this one wherever he could. I kind of have to wonder if this one had blown up instead of Teen Spirit, whether he would have still considered it one of his favorites. 
Oh. He starts off like he's telling a knock knock joke. He's like, "Hey, one baby said to another, <laughs> like, like telling jokes up in here." Yeah, the song starts in a weird <laughs> way. One baby to another says, "I don't care what you think unless it's about me." And some people might recognize that line because Fallout Boy has a very popular song based around that line. Huh. I think this is the closest Nirvana's gonna get to a cheesy love song on Nevermind. And spoiler alert, it is not close. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not close at all. What don't you find romantic and lovey about chew your meat for you, pass it back and forth in a passionate kiss from my mouth to yours, I like you? That screams romance. It screams. <laughs> you got that right. <laughs> it's this weird picture of like unhealthy dependence in the relationship. Yeah. And he starts the chorus off by saying, it's now my duty to completely drain you. Now, this is a line that Kurt's ex said to him around the time of their breakup. Oh, really? It's hard for me to wrap my head around that as like something you would actually say to a real person. No, it's not. It's a good thing that that person became an ex. <laughs> it feels like this partner is saying, I'm going to replace place all the bad things that i don't Mm. like about you with what i want you to be and they kind of have this unhealthy expectation to be in such total control of the relationship yeah that makes sense i'll agree with you on that but i still disagree with you about how romantic this song is i mean if you're gonna chew your meat for somebody that means you have to like mama birded into their mouth and that's pretty romantic uh i don't think that's as romantic as you think it is So there's this rhythm section in the middle, and there's this little squeaking sound that you can hear in there. Yeah. It almost sounds like a rubber duck. Uh, A rubber duck? You know why? It's actually a rubber duck. (laughs) They put some production effects, some delay, and some reverb on it to make it sound really quote-unquote trippy. But they used a rubber duck to make a little squeaky sound on Drain You. Rubber ducky, you're the one. I'm gonna drain you of all your fun. Nailed it. Got it. Nailed it. Thank you. Lounge Act? Lounge Act. Probably, I think, my least memorable song. Absolutely. I think it absolutely is. I think that's part of the irony and like why they called it Lounge Act, because it just felt like lounge music, which is just something, you know, that would be in the background. Fair enough. Lyrically, this song felt like a response to Drain You. You know, that song illustrates this dependence, and this song starts out with the line, Truth covered in security, I can't let you smother me. So it feels like almost a total opposite there. Huh. I really like the lower register of his vocal on this song, too. It's kind of a an area that he doesn't take his voice to many other times. This is a song of jealousy, too, and the struggles to be faithful. He talks about a friend who makes him feel. He actually said that he doesn't play the song except for when his wife isn't in the audience. When his wife isn't in the audience? Yeah, because it's a love song for someone who's not his wife. Uh, fair enough. In the second verse, he has this really awesome line. He says, don't tell me what I want to hear. Afraid of never knowing fear. I love that play between being afraid of never knowing fear because it's inherently a paradox, you know? It's just a cool way to use that. It's like the line, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Yeah, exactly. And then he repeats the first verse, but he just breaks into this raw scream. There's not a ton of melody here and the chords have just barely started to get repetitive. And that scream, I think, changes things up just enough to keep you interested. Well, and the scream brings you back into to the unpolished bit really gets into the grunge side of the genre the the grunge side of grunge yeah yeah <laughs> the next song after that is stay away stay away has this call and response type verse and it's another very strict syllable pattern that he adopts yeah kurt cobain gets what i'm saying though about kanye he says every line ends in rhyme he understands you gotta have the rhyme <laughs> he says he doesn't know why the call and response system at play here is that every line in the verse ends with i don't know why so he sets it up a whole bunch of different ways monkey see monkey do i don't know why rather be dead than cool i don't know why it's just this expression of kind of being stuck in the flow of things and not really understanding why you're doing them my favorite version of that that he does is the give an inch take a smile i think that's a really clever play on the phrase give an inch take a mile yeah that one stuck out to me too the 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 phrase give an inch take a smile is saying compromise so that you can be happy and then he's going i don't know why you would do that you're not gonna be happy if you compromise i think is what he's doing right well i interpret it you know the phrase is if you give someone an inch they'll take a mile so if you compromise your own integrity on anything for an inch someone will then take your happiness away from you in Hmm. turn interesting i don't know i think there are different ways that you can read it because he just says give an inch take a smile and i honestly kurt cobain is very critical of people trying to trying to analyze his lyrics understandable yeah well and he kind of sings them sometimes in a way that's mumbled or unclear or ambiguous so he often fires back at people and says you can't even understand the words how do you expect to interpret them fair enough i'm on a plane i'm on a plane this is 
track number 11, this is the foremost example, I think, of melody first, words second. I think he chose a lot of these words just because they sound good together. Yeah. So that's not bad. You know, I, I think it works well. Yeah. One of the repeated lines that he says a lot is, I love myself better than you. And I think that's either a really abrupt departure from the self-deprecation that we've seen so far, or a really sick way to tell somebody that you probably hate them. I don't know. I think when juxtaposed to the rest of the album and the self-deprecation, it actually is just a really, really sad line. He's saying, I love myself more than you, and I hate myself, so that means you must really hate me. Oh, okay, so you read it. Okay, yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's pretty flexible, pretty open to interpretation if you have an opinion on that anybody that's listening to this let us know let us know on social or on the youtube channel yeah i've got a very you type comment in my notes here Uh oh. he says <laughs> i'll start this off without any words but i mean clearly that's a word plenty of words right there what's up plenty of words I'm on a plane. Sorry. It's just catchy. It's just so easy to sing along with. The next pair of songs I think we have to talk about together. Together, yeah. Because track 13 is called Endless Nameless. It was a hidden track that was put like 13 minutes after the end of Something in the Way. So Something in the Way would play and then there would be minutes upon minutes of silence and then you would have Endless Nameless come in after that. And they'd be silent for like 13 minutes? Yeah. People that bought records thought that their record players were broken people Mm. that bought cassette tapes took their radios to people because they thought that their player wasn't rewinding properly when the album finished i didn't know that that's awesome so yeah hidden tracks used to be a really big thing not so much anymore because everything is laid out right in front of you but this was a song that was not listed on the album sleeve but before that is something in the way that's the song that we mentioned earlier where kurt puts himself in the shoes of a homeless person living under a bridge i love something in the way it would definitely be in like my top two if it wasn't coupled with endless nameless oh interesting yeah i have a feeling we're gonna differ on endless nameless (laughs) probably well here's a fun fact about something in the way when they recorded it kurt couldn't exactly express how he wanted it to sound so he took a 12 string guitar and he laid down flat on his back in the studio and played it to try and produce the sound that he had in his head so they recorded that and they tried to overdub it which could not have been easy The recording process for this song has to be pretty unconventional. It's where the majority of the 65 grand went. (laughs) Yeah, right. This is another song that feels really eerie. Yeah. Uh Got some really vivid lyrics in there, too. I'm living off grass and the drippings from the ceiling. It's okay to eat fish because they don't have any feelings. It's really, it's captivating. Mm Mm-hmm. So we have that, and then just to emulate for you what the experience is like, we're going to insert 13 minutes of silence right now before we talk about Endless Nameless. No, we're not really going to do that. But like we talked about, yeah, it's a hidden track. It's a very different track than anything else on the album. It should have stayed hidden. should have stayed hidden. Then we wouldn't have gotten to hear it. I did not like Endless Nameless. Do you know anything about this song? No. <laughs> Let me tell you something about Endless Nameless that maybe will change your perception of it. Go for it. Well, I already think it was cool that it was a, a hidden track. That already helped it a little bit. Yeah. They recorded this spur of the moment. They were recording Lithium, and they had done four run-throughs of Lithium, and they just weren't getting it. It wasn't coming out right, and they were so frustrated, and Kurt Cobain started playing this, and the engineer said, oh, shoot, and he hit record. Grohl and Novoselic just joined in with him, and they recorded this six minutes of absolute rage. They said that it was, like, scary to watch Kurt sing like this yeah he was straining so hard and yelling so loud that they said his vocal cords were almost flying out of his mouth so that's why it's weird and why the lyrics just sound like kurt cobain screaming nonsense is because this is really his blind rage yeah that's what he was doing that's fair he was so frustrated at the end of the song he breaks his guitar and you can hear it on the recording oh wow that was it that was the only left-handed guitar that they had so they stopped recording for the day i think my biggest frustration with it is that it starts out so promising I love how the song starts and then it just devolves into the rage like you talked about and it's such an unfitting way for something that sounded so awesome to go. Yeah. Okay, I can understand that. I'm kind of in the opposite camp. I think it's really just a testament to their talent as a band, that they can just pick up and play this, that they've never played or rehearsed. Or I mean, no, that's all wonderful. I love all of that. It's just I wanted it to continue to be a good song and not devolve into madness. Honestly, this song was going to lower my ranking score by one point. It's going to lower the whole score by a point. That's significant. Yeah. 10%. But your background information has actually redeemed at that point, but I'm still angry. Like, I, like if that's what they were going for, 
for. Great, but don't ruin such an awesome sounding intro with it. Let's move into the next section, what we're calling the final spin, where we wrap everything up for you. The final spin. Yeah. (laughs) First of all, let's talk about favorite song and why. You said the middle three are kind of in contention for your top. I think I'm giving it to Lithium. Good pick. Great pick. It's the most well-rounded awesome. Like, Bali's awesome in its lyrics. Territorial Pissing has some awesome music. Lithium has both. Yes. And it's also got just the clever balance between good and bad and hollowness. Not to mention it being super catchy. I think, at least my favorite right now, subject to change in a month or a year or whatever, is Come As You Are. That's a good pick. Honestly, I would have been okay with any pick as long as it wasn't lounge act or endless nameless i thoroughly enjoyed almost every song on this album well good i'm glad about that time for the numerical score breakdown mine as most of you know by now is categorized in four weighted categories the music the lyrics the instruments or production and the overall vibe of the album uh so let's start with music i think this album has such a unique blend of cool chord changes and captivating melody and just moments of screaming (laughs) This whole album feels like everything Nirvana is just distilled and straight into you like an IV. All of their skill and angst and rage and just it's visceral and it's all right there for you on a silver platter. So I think I'm going to give music a 92 at the end of the day. Yeah, all right. That's in the 90s. Yes. Thank you, Captain Obvious. Lyrically, like we talked about, sometimes he picks these little lyrical rules to adhere to that force him to write within a box, but I think that brings out his creativity even more. Now, some of the lyrics don't make much sense at all. I think the lyrics where they're strong are exceptionally strong, and where they're weak, they're pretty easy to overlook. They don't really drag the score down a lot. So lyrics, I'm giving a 90, I think. Now, for production, I kind of almost agree with them, that it's a little bit too crisp, a little bit too polished for what they honestly are going for. Not grungy enough. Yeah, it might not be grungy enough. Production gets an 89, not because of their instrumentation. Again, mostly strictly that's from a production standpoint. And then overall vibe, I think I'm going to give it a 93. I think this album is consistent throughout. I don't think it has very many dips. Everything feels like it fits so well together. At the end of the day, my final score comes out to a 92.3. Now wait, wait. So you're saying to yourself, this is a record ranking podcast and you just gave this album a 92.3 and you also gave billy joel's the stranger a 92.3 oh really we got a tie we 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 got a tie everybody <laughs> we have a system for resolving ties on the spreadsheet there are four categories and 400 points total up for grabs so whichever record has earned the most cumulative points out of those 400 will break the tie and in this case that's Nevermind. Nevermind has a 91 unweighted average the stranger has a 90 really interesting that is how this shakes down we've already had our first tie and we're only a couple episodes in huh that's crazy i didn't expect that I don't go through all of that complicated process. I just give it a gut feeling score out of 10. Yeah. This album's going to get three Ted's, two Ed's, and one Fred out of 10 for me. Should we ship that one off to the math department too? (laughs) Uh, I think I can handle that. Three, two, and one. That's a seven out of 10. Uh, Don't need no squirrels to tell me that one. You might might need some squirrels to tell you that one, buddy. That's a six, isn't it? I didn't do my math right. We need to update that one. Hang you on. might need to try harder on your math. <laughs> oh, no. All right, so we've got a 7 out of 10 and a 92.3. So Different a little. We did, not as much as last time. So that pretty much wraps up Nevermind for the day. I think this was a great episode. I think we got to uncover a lot of fun facts about Nirvana in this one. We're wrapping up, yeah. Thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed this little chit-chat that we had about Nirvana and Nevermind. Be sure to check us out on Instagram, where we try and post a funny picture every week, and on Twitter, where we talk about all the relevant information about the album and any updates that we have. That's Spin It Pod on Twitter and Spin It Pod Official on Instagram. And with that, we will bid you adieu with uh, an always classic Keep spinning, everybody. Till next time. Why does it have to be till next time? Why can't they just keep spinning all time?